Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, targeting STAMP in CML. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast, Dr. Gerald Radich and Dr. Michael Morrow return with a discussion of a new target for the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia and the newest treatment on the block, Esimenib. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Radich is a professor in the Clinical Research Division of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Dr. Morrow is a professor of medicine and leader of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program in the Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Radich will begin our discussion. Hey, Mike, Jerry, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm stuck in traffic though, Jerry. I, uh, I love these morning commutes, you know, it's New York City is, is a rough place to, to practice CML care, but, but let me see if I can roll up the windows here so we can uh, okay. really talk about CML. Yeah, again, we should probably be talking about something else. It's not, it's not like the world is uh, bereft of things to talk about, but um, certainly few things as, as interesting or stimulating as, except for maybe the baseball season and the upcoming and the ongoing NBA playoffs, but be that as it may. Um, so I just happened to be reading over for an, another lecture I have to give, you know, the more recent study of Asimitib versus Basutinib. And I think that one of the, and you're part of that action, uh, and you are the, the experts, especially compared to me, maybe could, could I kind of go over a what how it's different? You know, the company likes to talk about this intelligent design stuff, which makes you think like, well, like what? Versus non-intelligent design? You know, it's, it's like, so. Yeah. Um, but but there's some some interesting stuff to it. Um, and, and maybe just kind of highlight how it's different? Do we really think it might be better than something like Basutinib in, in the trials and sort of the pros and cons and that takeaway from that study, what, what you really thought were the important things? Sure, yeah. So that is a catchy term, intelligent design and, and, and you know, targeting a stamp. What, what is stamp? Uh, specifically targeting the uh, mirrors to a pocket. Um, yeah, that's not a that's not exactly everyone's bread and butter when they're thinking about CML. I, but you know, interestingly, from the science, from the basic science level, I think when when this whole beast you were able as a driver of of cancer, a singular driver of cancer was was unraveled, which was you know, some beautiful work. I, I think we really saw a couple of potential targets in the kinase. And uh, in retrospect, uh, my understanding is that at the scientific and the, at, at the at the structural chemistry level. Um, Allosteric inhibition, um, or perhaps correcting what was um, this loss of this mirror binding site, and, and this and something that could affect the mirror pocket, rather than the ATP binding pocket, which is also very logical, as you mentioned, also intelligent design, um, could have been a nice alternative. But I think it just took some time for us to see something come to light. We knew there were other allosteric inhibitors in in development through the years, but I don't know if we, anyone had was able to 
get it right with regards to the right chemical structure with the least toxicity and greatest potency against uh, able kinase and what something that um, you know was just what we were looking for. But lo and behold, I think a seminary is filling a lot of those roles. So I think one of the biggest features of this now is so you have a drug that is complementary to the ATP binding vodka drugs and you could combine them. I think that was really one of the main reasons to, to get this um, to patients. Could we have, as I like to think of it, almost like HIV medicine, not, not to, to compare the two conditions because obviously the implications are quite different, but you know, dual inhibition of a virus and in, in two different pathways and dual inhibition of, of a leukemic cell, might, there, there's a lot of similarities there. You, know, you might really have some synergy or some complementary um, effect. So you know, preclinically, I think we had very potent and very limited ABLE inhibitor through a different means. Uh, we knew we could combine it. Um, and phase one study showed us, yeah, safe, uh, effective by itself. You could combine it with other TKIs. Although interestingly, you know, each drug took different investigation to sort it out because you, know, the, the, you now have two, two drugs in the same system. So you have drug-drug interactions to think about. You may not be worried about drug interactions at the binding sites, sure, but you always got to think about drug-drug interactions. And that works still, I think, in development, but you clearly had enough information to move it forward. And you mentioned the Basutinib comparative study. So, you know, at the time, as we mentioned in our first podcast, you know, third-line therapy, it's a little complicated. So what's your best choice? Is it Penanib? Could you be using Basutinib as an alternative second-generation inhibitor? And then now Asimunib's on the block. And that was a fair comparison at the time based on what the labels of the drugs said. And I think it was, you know, it's fair game. And the ASSEMBLE study really showed us that you yeah, probably had a better tolerated drug. You had a drug with significantly greater efficacy. You had durable response. And you had more of a winner when it comes to third-line therapy. And, and lo and behold, we got approval. So I, or, or Novartis get, got approval. We, we, we helped the effort, all of us in the, as a CMO community, to, to help get our patients on study. And um, I think... What was your impression of uh, you know some of the some of these patients? Uh, it's pretty amazing stories of some of these patients um, with pretty bad disease. It, it reminds you a lot of the patent story uh, a bit. I guess that a couple of things that, that not to be a Debbie Downer on this study or not, but a couple of things. Um, so when you see a patient and start them on bisutinib, what dose do you use? Do you actually use five hundred or you start lower for the diarrhea issues? Yeah, no, fair question. I always start lower, so I. That was tough to watch. Uh... So, yeah, so, so the trial by by making people start at 500 uh, essentially kind of tips you in favor as far as toxicity from the get-go, right? So that's that's one issue. Agreed. Strike one. Yeah, so the other thing that, that I thought was interesting is that, you know, nature, Darwin, is, is always going to figure out a way to become resistant, right? And so you did see new emerging mutations in yeah. the assimilative arm um, and I believe they were more than the Basutinib arm, which kind of, but the idea that, that e even though, and I think it's kind of, again, it's, it's sort of elegant in a cool way, that even though you have a different way mechanism of blocking ABLE, the disease is still going to find a way to become resistant, right? And when you're, in, and when you're dealing with third-line patients, it's sort of like resistance is forever in a way, right? So, there's, so Mr. Darwin will still have his way. He does. I, and, and I think you're right. I, I think these, this was a tough patient group. You know, these patients yeah. had four, some even had five lines of therapy. So they might have, yeah, we, we saw the profile of, of uh, mere pocket mutations 
Um, we saw that some of the ATP binding mutations weren't always sensitive to ismimib either, and that requires a bit more uh, investigation. I think overall mutations may be less frequently seminated, but certainly possible and not exempt in any way. And you're an expert on this, so I'll just, where do you think this fits in the spectrum of cardiovascular toxicity? I'm guessing you would say imatinib is the lowest, and panatinib is probably the highest. True. So where do you think the sentiment fits, is going to fit in when all is said and done? Uh, I immediately said in, in my head, hurry up and wait, because I think <laughs> cardiovascular story has always been one that, uh, you know, you need a little bit of time to see it evolve. But on the other hand, you know, in the phase one study, we have, some, we have patients on treatment seven, eight years plus at some pretty healthy doses. You know, the, the interesting thing about a seminib is the dose um, range too, you know, 40 milligrams twice a day, 80 once a day versus 200 twice a day. That kind of worries some people, but you know, when you've done a good phase one study and you've done it for a long, for a number of years, you know that those doses are safe. And the beauty of these targeted drugs is that we don't really see dose limited toxicity. I'm not sure that's the story, but who knows um, in the end what we might see. People have speculated the more potent able inhibitor you have, the more potential you have for some cardiovascular toxicity because of some overlap in tissue and and target. Um, maybe it's you know, some other um, modest effect on another kinase, uh, it's hard to say. I think so far, so reassuring. I wouldn't say absent, but reassuring. I think we see limited cardiovascular um, change in, in with the patients. Um, comparatively with basudinib, it was, you know, there was slightly higher, but I think overall, both those drugs are pretty well tolerated and they both were better than some of other choices, but obviously we need more time. Yeah. So in, in clinic um, in, of your patients, what percentage of patients do you think fall into this category of third line? Have you figured out what to do? Is this like a like a five percent, ten percent, twenty percent? Since I only practice in the humble uh, location in New York City, not the not in not in the uh, the River Nile or the but you know, the patients coming to us um, maybe you know proportionally higher in this situation. Although you know, I think our our, our colleagues you know around the country, around the globe, I think they work pretty hard to try to fit drugs to patients. And um, some of the folks are um, coming you know, because someone's thrown their hands up at, at, after two, two therapies or, or three therapies and they're not sure what to do. Um, but but I, I, I'm glad to, to really help weigh in because it's, it's a tricky decision. And I think it's probably a good, you know, a, a pretty significant proportion, a good third of consults for later lines of CML therapy are now candidates for this option. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased that we have the option to offer I and mean, it was great. Now is your phone ringing off the hook or, you know, your Twitter feed or whatever newfangled communication devices you youngsters have, um, about from outside docs about should my patient go on this, you know, stamp simonim trial? Is it, is it catching traction out there? I think, um, thank goodness, you know, this isn't, I, I say my, I practice, you practice similar maybe out there in, in the West Coast. Um, you know, we, yeah, we see a lot of folks that are struggling. Uh, so we may see a higher proportion. But the good news is this is a niche. I think something we have to think about is uh, maybe we could use these drugs even better. Maybe we should be using them a bit earlier. Um, so we're, we're, we're not facing these challenges. So I wouldn't say the phone's ringing off the hook because I think, thank goodness, the case burden is low. Um, and maybe we're able to uh, move, the, move a lot of these folks onto the, our trials. But I think the questions are out there. And uh, I'm really intrigued to see as we get more time and, and more patients treated outside of trials and in practice, and we see some more data from some trials that are running now, 
how we might be able to best use these drugs because we, we're still looking for the holy grail of CML, which would be something better than what we have now, which is pretty good for sure. But um, oh, that question always arises with these more potent inhibitors. Could they, you know, it was, it was raised with Panatinib, you know, and it was just a toxicity question. So you've got your ear to the, the, the ground here on this kind of stuff. Where, where are we going to use this drug next? I mean, do you see it coming in first line, second line? I mean, obviously it's going to move up the food chain. Um, and how fast? Um, I, I hear rumors that there's this thing, there's this, you know, CML cancer consortium I've, I've heard about, um, and then it might be doing a, a frontline therapy. Is there anything to that? It could be. I, uh, I think there are, I've heard some rumors about that too, uh, but full, full disclosure, we, we, we're, you're um, quite involved and in, in a leader for Asteria and we're, and as our, our U.S. colleagues, I think we like to uh, work together in this consortium and, and our goal is curing CML with treatment cessation type approaches, but we're clearly broadening out CML consortium, some other uh, investigators around the world have begun to launch disseminative frontline trials, disseminative treatment cessation, you know, schemas. There's clearly a second second line um, schema that's that's being developed. Uh, we, we have, we see great potential. So I, I think our trial is going to look at patients just getting a seminib and then uh, see how well it can perform. You know, how can we break the glass ceiling? And then even thinking about optimizing um, response by adding another TKI, take advantage of that combination um, ability and um, and drive people home uh, into even anyone who's lacking any kind of deep remission to, to get a high fraction of people to treatment-free remission. I think that's our... So a pitch for this for this uh, unique trial, frontline therapy, through the John H. Curry Cure CML Consortium, there's, I think, seven team centers out there that are belong and will be enrolling patients. So if uh, anyone hearing this has a promising patient that wants to get kind of the state-of-the-art stuff, find your local center and, uh, and get them in. Send them east, send them somewhere in between. We're all over the country, so we're glad to talk to people, help, consult, and, and enroll, obviously. All right, well, I'm, I'm getting off my next stop here, grabbing a, grabbing a Starbucks. Talk later. Thank you, Jerry. That, that was great. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML2. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app for your iPhone. Thank you for joining us today.